Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. Thank you, Betty. Okay, if you want to keep Thessalonians in front of you, uh, it'll actually stay on the screen today, so uh, it'll be there as well. Um, yeah, like I mentioned, or I prayed actually, Paul's taking, or he had to go for a Presbyterian church meeting in Sydney this, uh, this on Friday, and they're moving Henna into her new uni accommodation at Wollongong, so... Uh, that's why you've got me this morning, and I get to open up the start of 1 Thessalonians, which is the book of the Bible that we're going to be looking at this, um, this year, uh, this term, oh, it's not going to take us all year, um, the, uh, about seven weeks looking at it. Last week, Paul gave us that big um, overview of the whole book, and maybe through the week in your groups, you read through the whole thing. Uh, there is a study guide to go along with this, if you want to do it with us, or that's what's happening in the groups. They're in the foyer. You can grab one. They're $8.00. Um, and yeah, going through this fantastic um, and really encouraging book. So uh, let's, let's get into it today. And, and as we do, let's pray that God would uh, speak to us through his word. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again that we can come to your word. And Lord, we pray that it wouldn't fall on deaf ears, but that you'd give us uh, the space in our, in our thinking and in our heart uh, to, to be challenged by your word to be honest with you and to receive your word. Lord, we pray that it might um, return to you, Lord, having worked in us, and Lord, that it might produce fruit in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a moment where we didn't recognise where we were. Nothing about this place was the same. It didn't look the same. It was barely recognisable. Something powerful had been to this place and completely transformed it. See, I'm 
reflecting back on a youth camp that I went on in 2001 and we were camping with Dave Webster, he was a youth leader back then with a um, pretty groovy mullet haircut and Dave Pym was our old youth worker, if you were around back then you'll remember him and he took us to this place out the back of Grafton called Jacadjury, has anyone been out there? Not a bad spot. Now we'd been there the year before and we'd set up camp on this beautiful river flat, the trees created this beautiful little shaded canopy, I can't remember what time of year it was, but we had an awesome time there and it was just a beautiful place to be. But since the last time we'd visited, they'd had a flood through there and the flood had completely transformed the layout of the place, it was completely unrecognisable. Um, after a while we worked out, oh that's where we did camp that other time but none of it looked the same. And really, we'd probably returned too soon after the flooding for it to be a good campsite, but uh, no one went and checked that out, so that's what happened. Um, but we ended up camping right up on the high ground because where the flood water had been had just kind of taken away any good spot to be. There was no shade left. There was lots of broken branches and things like that. And so we're up on this high, um, high part, way up from the river. I reckon if you like built a two-story house on the riverbank, uh, you would still be able to see over it. That's how high up we had to go just to find a good camping spot. But you could tell from where you were, looking up at that, that the water that had rushed through there must have been so, so powerful because all the trees were like this now. There was debris still hanging out of the branches and things like that. Now, if you ask someone who lives in downtown Lismore about the transforming power of flood water, I'm sure they could tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it's pretty foolish, really, that Lismore's built where it is, is um, and sorry if you own property there, but apparently the local Aboriginal people, when they started to set up and started build buildings uh, in downtown Lismore. They said it's not a good idea to build that there. I think, was it Mr Wilson that started it all? I'm not sure. I heard the commentary about it during the flood last year. And so we kind of have this negative idea of what floods are and floods are like, and fair enough. Noah, um, the story of Noah talks about how God sent a flood to destruct. But I want you to shift that kind of negative thinking away for a minute and just think about the power to transform of flood water and how it rushes out. See, because out in this bush setting, the transformation from one year to the next just pointed to how powerful that water can be, that surge of water that would have washed through there. Well, the book of 1 Thessalonians is, is a book that is written, a letter that was written to encourage a bunch of people. But the first bit of encouragement is really to recognise the transforming power of the gospel message as it flooded out from Jerusalem into the rest of the, the kind of surrounding areas, the surrounding cities. The context and purpose is the encouragement, but the bigger context of being in the New Testament, in the Bible, reading one of these letters from Paul, who was the great missionary to all these people, the bigger context is that the message that Jesus has left has been powerfully reaching people and it's been transforming people wherever it goes. So flood is a good way to think about it. Wherever it hits, it transforms people. 
Now, if you've done a bit of homework in looking at 1 Thessalonians, Acts chapter 17, the history bit of the New Testament, that's where you can read about Paul's first visit to Thessalonica. And you see there that heaps of people have heard Paul. Everywhere he's gone, he's, he's impacted people. Now, a heap of people received his message, so he impacted them positively. It's about three weeks after he first arrived there, there's a mob that chases him out of town, and even those people have been reached by his message. Sure, they, you know, it's to their own destruction, but still, it's reached them. When Jesus started his actions and his teaching, it's never been able to be stopped. Like, never in history. Where are we? 2018. For all those years, this message has flooded out into the world. So this first part of the letter is about that transforming power, the transforming power of Jesus, of the message of Jesus, and the transforming power in the lives of people who will receive it. And so when we balance that with the context that Paul's trying to encourage us, we're going to be thinking today about how encouraging it is to see transformation. So I just want to cover some bases here. As you listen this morning and as you think about this, I don't want anyone to slip into the, the kind of negative thinking that we can have about ourselves and think, oh, he's going to talk about transformation. Well, that's not really me. Look, I'm just little old me. I'm not very transformed. I wish I were more transformed, but I'm just kind of resigned that, you know, I heard it years ago. My mum and dad told me and whatever. I want to challenge you this morning to, to let your heart praise God for the transformation that is in your life and actually seek to be more transformed by him. That's the whole process of, of um, sanctification is the big theological word, of being re, remade into the likeness of Jesus that he says that we're doing in us. Now, also, if you um, don't believe that you've received Jesus into your life yet, I want you to listen carefully too and consider the nature of this transformed life by this powerful message. And finally, I just wanted to say, don't find yourself sitting here thinking critically this morning of other people and wishing, oh, if only they were a little bit more transformed. Because the point of Paul writing here is to encourage us. We want to be a church that helps others to do the same. That's that little tagline that Paul's been sprouting the last couple of weeks. Whatever we do, we want to be helping other people do the same. We're not inward-focused Christians. We're Christians that are on mission to the people around us to disciple each other and to encourage each other and to reach other people as well. So really, there's three things that I want us to consider this morning that come out in this passage. and I've put an outline on the back of the handout today, but they come down to these three things. The first thing is that the gospel, it transforms us in a powerful way. He talks about the Word, the Holy Spirit, and about having a deep conviction. The second thing is, the Thessalonians had a transformed life modelled to them by Paul and his crew that went along there. And the third thing is that they actually became the models. Specifically, they showed what a life looked like to turn from idols and to turn to Jesus. So that's the stuff that this lets us talk about today. So thinking about that first point, what is the evidence of a transformed life? What does it look like? How can you spot it in a crowd? Well, Paul says here in that verse, uh, verse 3, 
that it's their work, it's their labour, and it's their endurance. Let's read verse 3 again. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance that's inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What he sees in this church is active Christian lives in an active Christian community. If you jump to verse 8, you actually get an idea of what the activity was. It's likely that what they're all doing is sharing the gospel with more and more people. They're actually people on mission together. And it's inspired and produced and prompted by those three big words that really stick out. Faith, hope and love. Those gifts of God that really sum up the message that we believe as Christians. God has loved us. He has given us everlasting hope through Jesus. And it comes through the gift of faith to receive Jesus for ourselves. A transformed life that comes through encountering and believing and receiving the good news about Jesus. But notice this. It's not just that they've like accepted an intellectually stimulating and witty kind of gospel presentation. It's not like they're in week five of Alpha or Christianity Explored or whatever and they've decided to sign up for some Jesus in their life. It's not like that at all. They didn't just hear a message about Jesus. See, the message, Paul tells us, was accompanied by three really significant things. Have a look at verse five with me. Paul says, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. See, this is a powerful message. The news that God in Jesus has made himself known to people, and that that involves saving them and giving new life, that is a powerful message. Paul, in presenting the message, he didn't fluff it up and he didn't play it down. He didn't try to make it more than it was. He didn't shy away from the hard bits, like actually saying to someone, you're a sinner and you're in rebellion to God, but he will, by his grace, invite you back. He didn't fluff it up or play it down. Acts 17 actually says a summary of what he, what he spoke to those people. He taught them about Jesus' death, about his resurrection, and that he was the promised Messiah, that he fulfills what God has done, that he is the, the saviour sent by a sovereign God. That's his message. God is in charge. His son was sacrificed in love, and he is the resurrected human, the resurrection, the first fruit. There's no more powerful news than that. You can't look at your phone, at your news feed, or turn on the TV and get any more powerful news than that. Sure, we get, you know, used to it, but really, you will never hear anything that can do more or transform more than that. Nothing can inspire the lasting hope or love or faith. And yet that's not all. See, because he talks about the Holy Spirit who's at work in them as they believe. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one that's gone ahead to these people and 
and has renewed their heart that they might believe. We know, brothers and sisters, verse 4, loved by God that he has chosen you. We know that the message was used by the Holy Spirit because they're believers. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in someone, that they are believing, that faith has come into their life. Verse 6 says it plainly, that they are people who have received the message. And Paul is deeply convinced that the Holy Spirit is continuing to work in them. And how does he know it? Because even in the midst of suffering, what's he say about them? That they're joyful. Let's look at verse 6 again, just the second part of it. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul knows they've been transformed because they've received God's message, God's message that is immensely powerful and the Holy Spirit is apparent in their life. And he knows that they're convinced of the message personally. He knows the power of the message personally. And that's what he says in that next part. When he says that the message has come to them with deep conviction, he's not saying that they were deeply convicted of their need for the message, but he's actually saying there that of, he's speaking of his own conviction, that when he shared the message with them, it's a personal message. It's come from his heart. It's come from his own experience. It comes with his testimony of meeting Jesus and being transformed by him himself. The message they heard and were transformed by was an overflow and an outworking of Paul's life and his mission. And that's the way that it works. It comes through God's people and brings more people to become God's people. So then how will we know that our lives are transformed personally and that God is really growing us as a community here? Well, you can sum it up through these verses. If we've been transformed, we'll be actively on mission. And I don't think that means just busy, like consumed by it, but, but we'll be people that are devoted to it, that it will have the you know, the, the first place in our life. That it's not a dormant thing, not an idea that we agree to, but something that, is de that is, we're devoted to in our life. What else will be true of us? Well, we'll be rooted in faith and hope and love. And those will be things not just that we can explain, but that you can actually see in the way that we talk to each other, the way that we spend time with each other, the way that we interact with one another here and all through our week. What else is true? We'll be all about the message of Jesus, all about his death, his resurrection, and his fulfillment of God's purposes. And we'll too have that deep conviction, that deep sense that it's true and it's important. But really there's a fifth thing that shows that our lives are transformed because we will become people that help others to do the same. And this whole concept of helping others do the same is exactly where Paul goes. Have a look back at verse 5 and the second part of it. He says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. See, Paul recalls of how they lived among them. And Paul just wasn't like couch surfing with the Thessalonians. He wasn't just you know, knocking on their door and seeing if they could give him a feed and somewhere to sleep. He was doing life with them and he was helping them 
know and see and touch and smell and encounter the warts and all kind of life of a believer, a transformed life. Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That idea of imitators. The truth is people imitate one another all the time. Whoever we respect or look up to or even just are around enough, we will frequently become like them. We rub off on each other. Kids ask me sometimes at school, they like go through this um, kind of a bit bizarre conversation, sir, are you really a Christian? And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be a scripture teacher if I wasn't a Christian. But then they're like, oh. And they're like, there's normally three or four questions that they'll, they'll lead them to. But one of them is always, sir, but do you swear? <laughs> now, if I'm honest with them, if I've been spending any time with my father-in-law doing sheep work, then yes, occasionally I swear, because it's not before long before I start to imitate him and every little sheep that goes past gets called a word that I'm not going to say in front of the church. For better or worse, this is true. We imitate the people that we look up to and are around. And because this is true, it's really important to, to account for this when it comes to how the gospel does change and transform us. Because we want people, sorry, because we want to grow in our life, we need to draw ourselves to people who can sh in who we can see this life being lived out. Paul's actually kind of elevated himself to the same level as Jesus. He says, only on this, only as a, uh, someone to be imitated, but look, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. What he's actually teaching us is that our, our life lived out can model to someone who Jesus is. It's a profound thing. It's only true because of God's work in us. It's not of us, but still happens through us. We're seeking to shape and restructure um, our church life all the time because we are committed to this mission. We're not committed to our traditions. We're committed to the mission. And some of the restructure is really informed by this desire. The whole thing of gospel communities that we talk about, it's actually about trying to establish communities that encourage and give people the tools to share Jesus by sharing our lives. That's the method. This is with our brothers and sisters in Jesus, sharing our lives and Jesus and growing together. And it's the same with those that we're seeking to reach for Jesus. We're not just going around knocking on people's doors saying, hey, have you thought about Jesus? People normally slam their doors at that. No, we're sharing our lives with them. And in doing that, sharing Jesus with them and showing the faith, hope and love of Jesus to them. See, the Thessalonians, they weren't just passive believers. They weren't passive believers and receivers you know that person that you've, you know you might have played sport with them who's just kind of there to make up the numbers who doesn't actually want the ball to get past to them unless they get their uniform dirty or the person that you've worked with and you've had to carry them through their shift by doing about half their tasks as well as everything that you've got to do everybody's nodding last weekend I went on a I went to Sydney for a conference and to visit a church that supports um, my work in the school um but to get there, I got on a, within three hours, I'd caught a plane and then a train and then a bus. And I don't know why people whinge about Sydney transport, because I got to where I needed. It was good. But 
It's a completely passive thing to do, isn't it? I, I drove to Ballina, sure, but as soon as I walked onto the aeroplane, I sat down and I was taken the rest of the way. I got on the train and I was taken the rest of the way. I got on the bus and I was taken the rest of the way. That's what a lot of churches sadly can look like. There's a minister or pastor or elders or someone who's running things and the rest just kind of keep the seats warm and journey along and it doesn't really work and it's not the Bible's version of what the church is. It's not, it's, that's a completely foreign idea. Jesus has called us to follow him and in following him, he sends us out. He actually grows us when we're on mission for him. That's what you see in the Thessalonians. They are sharing the message of Jesus and showing others what it is to follow Jesus. Let's read all of 8, 9 and 10 again, just so it's fresh in our head. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and, I can't say that word either, Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They are committed to the message of Jesus. It's foreign and odd in their culture, just the same way that it is in ours. I had a bunch of year nines this week trying to grapple with just the idea that God introduces himself to us through a man 2,000 years ago whose name was Jesus. And it was, it's foreign to them. It's foreign to anyone that we talk to about it, but it's true. We don't need to, just because it's awkward at, you know, in some aspects, doesn't diminish that it's true or that it's the most powerful message that we have. The message we have received and he's given us, that's it. I love how Paul puts it that the message rang out. The idea that people couldn't help but to hear it. They're not reserved or apologetic about it. They recognise that this message, no matter how unpopular it may be, needs to be heard in order that it's received. It needs to be proclaimed. Notice what Paul says rang out from them though. Look at verse 8 and the second part of it. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. He talks about their faith in God. It's, he's almost saying it interchangeably. Their lives, their faith, it's the message. Their lives have become the message. They have become the models like Paul and Timothy and Silas were their models. They are the billboards, the lit up signs. They're the marketing campaign. Their transformed lives are what's taking this message out. Message and life go hand in hand in sharing Jesus with people. Paul then tells us what their countercultural life is characterized by. And firstly, it's the way that these people have turned from idols to serve God. Now for the Thessalonians, it would have literally been pagan idols uh, from their Greek culture. And built into the everyday Thessalonica would have been an awareness and even some kind of superstition about the gods of the Greek culture. 
Culture, I think, is a strange thing because it can often fuse religion just with more mundane things like the food of a region or activities that are suited to a climate or a season. See, what's one of the cultures we have here? It's a surf culture or subculture. And why do we have it? Because of our climate, because there's a beach here. You don't find that surf culture in Alice Springs. We also have a bit of a cafe culture around the northern rivers. Why? Well, because we're pretty wealthy, because we can afford to spend, you know, four or five bucks on a little cup of hot milk and some bean from some country over whatever. <laughs> it's a strange habit when you think about it, but it's definitely a culture. And, of course, we have a big sporting culture, which is just pretty much Australia-wide. But even in that, culture can be quite localised. Have you ever met anyone from Victoria? See, they talk about this strange football game that's on an oval, and I don't know what it is. While these believers have rejected the idols of their culture, that doesn't mean that they've rejected their culture altogether. But they've rejected idol worship, and that's a less obvious thing for us. Think, what aspects of our culture form the idols? Well, really, the truth is anything can become an idol in our lives when it takes the place that belongs to God. There are idols that stand out as morally wrong, okay? The Bible makes that super clear. Don't go make a little statue. Don't put a little Buddha in your garden. It's not going to do anything. But even good things can become idols to us. Now, we could spend the whole morning here naming these things. We're not going to do that. But the main thrust of what Paul says here actually gives us an easier way to recognise what our own idols are. See, because the Thessalonians have turned from their idols, but they've begun to serve God instead, you can work out what your own idol is by asking the question, what gets in the way of you serving God? What stops you serving God? That's your idol. Now, it's a bit tricky because you've got to think about busyness, and I'm not going to touch that. But what stops you from serving God? Is it your kids? Is it your work? Is it the money that your job gives you? Is it your home? Keeping, it, keeping up to it. Your garden. Is it your own comfort? If we think repentance and following Jesus is just stopping sinning, we don't have a full picture. They turned from idols to serve the living God. Their lives are the example for us of how we need to respond. Take the focus of our idols and put it on God. Change the things that we invest our life into from something that is fake and that will let us down to something that is real. That's what repentance is. That's the basis of our relationship with God. It goes from something that's completely unworthy to something that is immensely worthy, from something that will rob us of life to the only place where we can find true fulfilment in life. 
I don't know if I've used this illustration before or not. I might have, but it's a great one, so I'll do it again. When we think about what it is to, to remove sin from our life or idols from our life or whatever, think of it like you're weeding a garden. So if you go and pluck all the weeds out of a garden and just stop there, what's going to happen is that within you know, a bit of rain and a bit of sunshine and you've got a garden full of weeds again. What you've got to do with that garden is go in and plant something there. Plant something so that it can grow. Turning from the idols in our life and really devote ourselves to serving God. That's what we need to do. But notice the big thing that ties this all together. See, it's all done with the hope that these people have. That's the motivator. That's the thing that keeps them going because everything that I've said, sure, it sounds easy, but to do it in every moment of every day, that's hard. It needs to happen with the hope that Jesus has brought them. Just think about the feeling of getting your house ready for someone to come and visit. See, when that's happening, you start to pay attention to the things that are important. You wonder, is there any food in my fridge for my guests? Have I cleared off the spare bed so that they can sleep in it? Am I free of, of the distractions so that when they arrive, I can actually give them my attention, not ask them to wait till home and away's over or something like that? That's a joke. What Paul is saying about the Thessalonians is that they are people patiently awaiting the return of Jesus. We're not going to go into great detail around it today because in chapters 4 and 5, Paul really unpacks what's happening in the future, when Jesus will return, all that kind of stuff. But Paul shows that this group are a group that are ready for that. And they're longing for the rescue that will come from Jesus. That is their hope. Paul has already said because of their hope, they endure. They endure hardship. They endure persecution. They live in a town where Paul was chased out by a mob. It's a hostile environment. But they're brave in the face of it. And why are they brave? Because Jesus. Because he's raised from the dead. Because he's the living Lord. Does your life model the transforming power of the gospel? Well, this is how you can tell. Have you turned from the idols of 21st century, modern, postmodern, technologically and scientifically advanced, prosperous Australia? Have you turned from that? Or is your time ruled by serving these idols? How can you tell? You can tell by whatever you put your faith in, what you love and what you hope will happen. So I want to challenge you that just this week ahead, pay attention to what takes up your time, to what makes you busy. And just be honest with yourself and confident in the grace of Jesus and answer, is anything here an idol to me? And then think, yeah, is something that I trust more than God? Is there something that I love more than God? Or is there something that I hope in more than God? And of course, this isn't everyday life and everything. Life is full of mundane things. 
But there's actually quite likely to be many things that we can just be blind to unless we're thinking this way. But it's still in the, in the spirit of encouragement that we need to do this. It's all about being encouraged to let those things just fall away and to have our eyes really turned toward Jesus. Let the things of earth grow dim because they will, because they are. And that's that transformation. And it's, it's already true of your life. Just think of your life five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. There will be change there that you can see, that you can thank God for. We can see that change. We can see that change in one another. See, Paul wrote this to encourage a church who were kicking goals. Like, they were on fire. They were doing it. They were the models of what it is to live this out, of to be a community transformed by the love of Jesus, a life of faith and that purposeful hope that he talks about. But he also wrote a stack of other letters. You look through the New Testament, all those letters of the places that he wrote to that were just indistinguishable from the culture around them. His writing to them was a rebuke. Look at the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's all about that. But even in that, what's he do? He points them back to the grace of Jesus, that they might find that hope, that love, that that faith might be fueled. That's where rescue from God's wrath is found. See, what endures to us out of this letter today is the charge to serve God, to find faith, hope and love in Jesus. And all that happening while we turn from the idols that will demand from us the devotion that only Jesus is worthy of. That's the take-home. That's the personal take-home. But don't miss this. Help others to do the same. See, while that's happening, these people rang out the gospel message. They were the models of it. Let's commit ourselves to being that beacon of light, that beacon of hope in our community, in our families, with the people that are hard to be around, with the people that we love but don't know Jesus, with everybody. I really hope that today and in our meetings this week and in our own prayer and personal life, that we can consider and really come to understand how people can connect with Jesus, how they can be impacted by this powerful message that I hope is the foundation of each of our lives. I was thinking over this in the past week, and, and it might take a bit of a shift in our thinking. See, the conviction of guilt and sin that may have prompted you into repentance in our kind of Christian Australia that's, that's been true of the last 50, 100 years, that actually might not be that relatable to someone in our post-Christian culture. Now, the gospel is definitely something that needs to be received with deep conviction. In fact, without that conviction, there is no receiving it. The gospel is about sin and redemption. But it's more likely that in 2018 Australia... People will repent when their world falls apart. When their world falls apart because the thing that's been their idol, that they've had their hope in, fails them. And it's going to fail them because it's not Jesus. 
They need to see in us a freedom to live that they don't have. A hope that is stronger than the idols our neighbours hope in. And be praying and praying and praying that God would use that. And that's the take home for us as a church. So let's encourage each other by the grace of God to be that. Amen.